Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Megan Bowen, Chief Customer Officer at Refine Labs. In this episode, we talked about what a revenue engine optimization agency does and how they help their customers grow with their demand generation framework. We also discussed how to measure churn and retention for technology software products that have a service delivery component and how Grubhub successfully retains customers during the mergers and acquisitions they undertake. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. How do you build a This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Megan is the Chief Customer Officer at Refine Labs, a revenue engine optimization agency that helps B2B companies grow revenue, shorten sales cycles, and lower customer acquisition costs. Prior to Refine Labs, Megan was the VP of Customer Success at Platters, CEO of Managed by Q, and Director of Corporate Accounts at Grubhub. So my first question for you, Megan, is what does a revenue engine optimization agency do and what are you responsible for as the chief customer officer? Absolutely. At Refine Labs, we help B2B companies apply our innovative demand generation framework to drive organic inbound demand for their product. Our approach is very buyer-centric. We have a strong belief that instead of having an outbound sales team cold calling prospects to educate potential buyers that there's a better way to do it today where you can use digital marketing for education and awareness building. And when your customer is ready to buy, you can make it really easy for them to come to your website and raise their hand, letting you know that they're ready for a sales conversation. So we work with all of our customers to redefine their entire go-to-market strategy to be more buyer-centric, more educational through content-driven digital marketing so that you have your buyers coming to you when they're ready to buy. All right, and talk us through that a little bit more. Like, how is this different from what companies currently are doing today? Like, where do you see the big differentiator between what you do and where companies maybe are making mistake, in your opinion? 
Absolutely. Most B2B growth stage companies invest heavily in an outbound sales function. Um, sales is critical. You obviously need a sales team, but you'll often find that they'll defer investment in marketing or even customer success in favor of building a large team of SDRs and sales executives to acquire new customers. And through, through that, ultimately what you're creating is a small army of people that are cold prospecting outbound to potential buyers. And the reality is there's a lot of people out there that typically are ready to buy any company's product or service. And the challenge becomes awareness and education. And so our view is instead of reaching out to thousands of people who may or may not even want to use your product, focus on building your brand, building awareness, educating the market on what you do so that you can capture the existing demand more effectively and they can come to you when they're ready to talk. When that happens, um, sales cycles are much shorter, customer acquisition costs are much lower, overall satisfaction is also higher, and it creates much uh, stronger unit economics for uh, a business to grow. So it's just really flipping the current model of building out a large sales team and refocusing it on smarter marketing. And given that, then you're also able to invest more in your customer success function so that once you acquire the customers, you can really ensure that they're onboarded properly and that you're doing all of the right things to retain them for the long term. Yeah. And when you talk about this then as well, because I think typically in B2B uh, SaaS, like when you have a sales force and uh, have SDRs focusing on outbound sales, it typically comes with a customer and a higher offer and LTV per customer. So you can afford to hire those sales reps. And that's typically how you would go about trying to close these larger deals. It typically doesn't work in the company where you have low offer and your typical customers paying you a couple of hundred uh, bucks. And then that's also typically when you resort as well to a lot more of these tactics that you're talking like, how do you see this converting as well? How is it lowering costs as well? Uh, Because it is a little bit of a different flip on the approach to acquisition. I think, uh, what do your typical customers look like? Am I correct in saying that typically be higher ARPA, higher LTV uh, customers? So our model can really work for the series A to the Series D, Series E company. We can work with customers from 2 million annual recurring revenue up to 100 million annual recurring revenue. So the the tactics um, will work in in all of those scenarios. Certainly for uh, more complex enterprise products that have a higher annual contract value, often the tactics are supplemented with a sales process as well. So it's not to say that you don't have salespeople involved at all, but that the motions of the sales team are different and are optimized for discovery and qualifying whether the customers coming inbound are the right fit and moving them through a more complex sales process. So yeah, we can work with all sorts of companies. The approach will vary slightly, but it it can work well. Okay, because almost it's what it sounds is startups and companies like Series A to Series D that have started out with an SDR approach, trying to potentially close more deals with sales, might even have a mismatch in sort of their channel 
customer fit, product fit, by trying to go the sales route when they could still be closing some of these deals, maybe potentially lower ACV uh, with uh, inbound marketing and then setting the right people up for success further down the line with customer success. Correct. And also most digital marketing campaigns that are run today are really focused on converting the buyer wherever they are. So whether they're on LinkedIn or Facebook or Google, all of the uh, content or the calls to action are around buy now, call us, contact a sales rep, request a demo. And so the other um, nuance to our approach is oftentimes there's um, an awareness and an education period that has to happen for buyers and looking at content creation in a way that's not intended to sell, but to educate. And that's an important distinction because it allows the buyer to learn and understand what that product or service does and make a determination that they're ready to use it versus a lot of traditional digital marketing is really focused on those sales focused calls, call to actions. Not that those aren't, those have a place certainly, but our approach is a little bit different as well, even with some of the traditional digital marketing campaigns. So it sounds like your campaigns that you focus on is when maybe potential customers are problem aware, they realize they have a problem, but they're not sure what solutions are out in the market there. And you're, you're really trying to educate them on what your uh, client's uh, product or service does and how they can help. Uh, so really looking at the, the top end of the funnel around education, and then by the time they need something or they need to buy a solution, they already have your client's product or service in mind. Exactly. And so what all of our customers see is an increase to organic traffic to their website and an increase in people coming to them, raising their hand, saying, I'm ready to have a sales conversation. And that's really the outcome that you want. (laughs) Yeah. So you're focusing on like a specific stage of the buyer's journey uh, then as an agency and then really trying to round that off with the different other services that you offer um as a whole the the next thing then uh, i was interested as well just looking at the background where you come from so uh, being a vp of customer success a former ceo at managed by q and grubhub what would you say is like one of the things that's been a common thread across the roles that you've had in the past and where you are potentially today yeah over the course of my 15 year career i've always been in the b2b Uh, startup scene in New York, all the companies that I've been at have had a combination of a technology software product, but also some component of service delivery in the real world. So whether it was Grubhub, I, you know, use an app to order food, that food arrives. I was at ZocDoc, you make a doctor's appointment online, but then you show up to the doctor. At Q, you order cleaning services, a cleaning crew comes to your office. It's, it's fascinating to me because it's a combination of optimizing for the product user experience that they have, but also ensuring that the subsequent physical delivery of that product or service also is a good experience. So there's the technology layer and then the human operational layer. And so even though I've been across different industries, every company I've been at has had a, a mix of that. And now at Refine Labs, we effectively are... of a services company. So it's really taking that experience that I've had in creating a great experience in real life with humans, which can be hard to control, and bringing that with me to help design our service delivery experience at Refine Labs to make our customers successful. 
Yeah, I can see like the huge challenges that must come uh, with working in a company where you not only have to worry about the services layer, but then also an additional uh, like people layer where they have interaction directly with your product or service and people are actually the product or service. I know obviously a lot of B2B SaaS companies have support and you could argue that people engage with the support, but I think it's a different expectation when you have a doctor at the end of the booking or you have a delivery guy arriving at you uh, at your door with the product or service. I think you really need to think more holistically about your product and it's not just software when it comes to churn and retention that could uh, like potentially cause people to leave your product or service. So I'm interested to hear from your side then like at these three companies you mentioned, how did you go about measuring churn and retention and specifically like where the main pain points or drop off was happening? Obviously, I think it can be a lot more complex to try and figure out uh, where you have opportunities to try and improve retention. Yeah, so let's we can unpack a couple of the companies I've been at. Zocdoc was the first company where I I built out the post sale function. I joined very early, and there was a, a customer support team and a sales team, and we were doctors were the buyer. They would they would pay to be on the marketplace in order for them to acquire new patients, and the service was free for patients to book. And uh, doctors paid monthly. And the goal is that they needed to get a few appointments a month to get the return on their investment. And so what would happen is when a doctor would be sold, there wasn't a formal process for them to be onboarded to the site. And as a result, there was just a lack of consistency and a lot of issues that would come up. They wouldn't have availability. Patients would book an appointment. It would get canceled. Something would go wrong. And so churn was a real issue. Doctors would cancel within a fairly short period of time after getting started because the onboarding process was not smooth and they weren't getting the return on their investment for a variety of reasons. And also the patient experience was negatively impacted if things weren't set up correctly um, on the doctor's profile. Churn was a problem. One of the things I was on the support team on the front lines for nine months. And I had really synthesized all of the issues in the patient and the doctor experience. And I was able to work with the leadership team. They gave me an opportunity to build out the post-sale function. And so my view of this is so many of the problems that happened in the experience that resulted in doctors churning could have been prevented had had we had a more intentional and proactive onboarding process. So... The first major initiative to improve the experience, reduce churn, was to develop a a launch team, an onboarding team, if you will. And so we had dedicated people that would work with brand new doctors as soon as they completed the sales process. And we went through a very specific sort of 30-day roadmap of items that had to be completed in order to ensure that the doctor was set up for success on the site. Information was accurate um, and that they were set up to get as many patients as possible. And when patients book with them, that they were going to get what they expected because we ensured that information was accurate, et cetera. So that's one story to unpack the issue yeah. we had churn greatly improved, NPS improved. It was a positive, significantly positive change all around. 
there's a couple of things as well on that. I think one of the things, this is definitely a recurring theme with the show is that oftentimes when we think about onboarding and like acquiring new customers, trying to get them to value as fast as possible, we often might miss out on some crucial steps of really educating customers on how to use our product or service correctly and actually like maybe slowing down the onboarding process, being a little bit more deliberate in terms of what are the key actions they need to be taking will actually set you up for long-term success along the way. But I'm also actually interested in, you mentioned something now and it's probably not even to do with the show but I think it's a valuable lesson is you said that leadership gave you the opportunity to take uh, on and get going ahead and set up this team after you sitting in support and synthesizing this feedback do you honestly believe that leadership gave you the opportunity or did you create the opportunity yourself it's funny you asked that question. I it was I think it was probably a little bit of both, but when I had joined Doc, I had been an account manager for 7 years at a education technology company and I was really ready to step into a team lead or a, a management position and at the time Zocdoc offered me this customer support job. I was obsessed with the idea of the product and wanted to be part of it, so I took it. And I I knew that they were missing this team. I knew that they probably needed it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to build my business case. And when you're on the support team, you're on the front lines. You know exactly what's going on. And I was able to be really diligent about recording the themes and the trends that I was noticing and put together a pretty solid business case of why they should decide to invest in this function. And, and it took me a couple of months of campaigning around the office, if you will, to ultimately get them to agree that it made sense and give me the go ahead. So definitely I I pushed for it and I felt really strongly and I didn't give up even at first when they were a little bit hesitant. And then ultimately they let made me uh, happen. shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I think this is definitely a recurring theme and I've seen as well, at least in my career, is if you see a problem and you spend the time to be diligent and figure out a plan and you go to present it, with connection, uh, like very rarely are people going to say no and turn you down. I think always within companies, especially fast growing companies, there's problems all the time. People are looking for others to come and solve them. And like a lot of the times, it's not about you waiting for opportunities, it's really about creating the opportunity for yourself. Just like that you phrased it that I was given the opportunity, but I didn't believe that for a second. I thought you definitely had something to do with it. Cool. Moving on then from your side as well, like uh, we talked a little bit about now your experience from the first company. Then you, I think after that, was it a Grubhub then you moved to? Yeah, exactly. So Grubhub as well then, I think maybe that's a little bit of a different experience because the customer then who's paying you is also the end person who's experiencing that people, that person at their door and showing up. How did things like play out at Grubhub? Like what was your role there as well specifically? And uh, how do you see like the theme continuing then from your, your previous experience? Yeah, when at Grubhub and Seamless, I was actually building out an account management function for their B2B division. And so separate from the consumer product that they have, they have a B2B arm that works with companies that feed their employees in the office. And so our customers were banks and law firms and tech companies. And there were sort of two sets of customers, if you will. We had our our you know, primary point of contact who might be an office manager, an HR admin, a finance person who would be our main point of contact for the account. But then of course you have all the employees at that company in using the product to order food. And putting the consumer business aside, we had to design a, you know, customer journey for 
our business customers for our primary administrator. And then secondarily, we also had to make sure that we were supporting both the administrator and the technology on the rollout to the rest of the company. And food would be showing up to the office for lunch or for late night dinners versus a a sushi order to someone's house. So that was a context of uh, my role at Grubhub. And so the first two years was spent building out that function. Interestingly, similar to ZocDoc, they had a sales team and a support team, but no post-sale function. So a lot of the things that I had learned at ZocDoc, I was able to take with me and really build that out. My last two years at Grubhub was also a very interesting project as it relates to like the customer experience and retention as well. I joined uh, post-merger of Grubhub and Seamless, pre-IPO. Post the Grubhub IPO, they then acquired five other B2B food delivery companies. And I was tasked with uh, transitioning the customers from each of those five brands over to the Grubhub brand so that we could sunset those other brands and the technology. And so that was fascinating uh, experience in change management because effectively, of course, they wanted to retain all of the customers. So how do you take a group of customers, move them from one technology to another? Inherently, there are lots of differences with features and restaurant selection and price and um, support, all of these different things. And so we had to map out a migration plan by brand to ensure that we could facilitate this type of transition in a way that would retain ideally all of those customers. So my time was split up into both of those projects, which were really interesting and fun to be a part of. Yeah, so I think that's very interesting. Like, I'd maybe want to go a little bit deeper uh, on the topic, sort of around the acquisition uh, strategy, how you managed to sort of keep customers happy if you did at all. Uh, what sort of the the playbook looked like for you? I think um, managing the process, you probably have like multiple uh, areas that you need to look into to understand not only bringing over customers, but then you also have the internal team uh, and the politics that go along with that, and uh, there must be many other variables. So. What did that process look like? What did a typical acquisition look like for Grubhub? Yeah, it was a really uh, wonderful experience to be a part of. I feel like a true lesson in really um, understanding change management. We wanted to make it um, uh, an easy transition, an easy migration process, and of course, protect the the revenue. And so it was a complex project that Um, involved really assessing um, what were the features, the pricing, what was the customer experience like um, for each of those five separate companies. You know, there are a lot of nuances in food delivery and each one of them did things a little bit differently. And so really assessing for each cohort of customers, um, what was that experience? What was the new experience going to be like for them? Identifying the major changes, the things that would stay the same, and putting together a communication plan with the um, employees, the account managers, the customer success managers of each of those companies um, so that they could be the ones um, that had those relationships with those customers and communicate what that transition would look like. Um, And so it involved training a lot of internal employees and onboarding them into the broader Grubhub family, um, putting together communication plans, actually handling the technical cutover of moving the accounts, and then a lot of customer communication, emails, phone calls, of course, for the larger customers, um, a lot more proactive notice and ensuring that we were doing everything we can to um, create a smooth transition. The first couple that we did 
Um, certainly with the projects of that scope, um, you know, they, they don't often go perfectly. So yeah. we had some learnings. Um, we were staggering a lot of the migrations um, in an attempt to try and handhold. Um, but we actually realized that caused um, more complications than it actually solved. And so as we moved on to the remaining migrations, we found having the cutover just happen on one day, just like ripping off the band-aid, yeah. was actually a little bit better than okay. prolonging it further. And of course, sometimes it created a little bit of shock if maybe, you know, they didn't see the email or they weren't able to pick up the call from their account manager. Um, but once we got through moving everyone over, we were very successful in retaining the customers and the revenue. Um, but it involved a lot of coordination, a lot of planning, a lot of over communication. The role of the account manager and the customer success manager was critical in leveraging those relationships to make the customer feel as good as possible. Um, and in many cases, their experience improved. Um, so yeah. it was a positive change. But in some cases, um, you know, there were things that they got from the old company that just weren't part of the Grubhub process. And so being really upfront about that from the beginning and managing those expectations was another really important part of it. Um, but what's so funny about change is once enough time goes by, people get used to the new thing. You yeah. know, they don't really remember the hiccups that happened. Um, and so that the big learning for me was really investing in the internal employee training because they're the ones that are on the front lines working with those customers. And then also for big changes, sometimes ripping off the Band-Aid is the better approach um, and just making the change happen quickly and, and doing your best to get everybody through it. Um, uh, seamlessly as possible. Yeah, definitely. I think that's also one of those things that comes up a lot, I think, in pricing and packaging as well is like when you think about, okay, let's, we're going to experiment now, we're going to introduce new prices and you then say, okay, like what is the grandfathering strategy going to look like? And then you start developing this plan that could lead into months, if not years, in terms of like how do you transition customers and more often than not as well, like you say, just like ripping that band off, making that change, but being really transparent upfront and clear about it is really a lot more impactful and a lot less strenuous on the team and also on the customers. I think one of the things like lessons for me as well at Hotshot specifically was when we updated our pricing and packaging and we really focused on the radical transparency component and also then just speaking through the rationale of why these changes needed to be made and uh, what was our commitment to our customers. And I think something that was really powerful that we did was communicate back to the customer how much the product had changed and updated since we launched the product. So we hadn't changed pricing since launch. It would be the first change. And we really just talked through, obviously, one, from one perspective, like where the product was when you first launched in the price versus where it is today. But then also how much money we had invested ourselves into the product. So Hotjar being a bootstrap company, pretty much everything that is earned is reinvested back into the product itself. And having that like open, transparent nature with your customers where you can say, okay, yes, we are raising prices, but this is the value we've delivered. This is how much we've reinvested ourselves into making that product better and to redistributing that value. I think is always going to be the best way to communicate some of these tough things when they need to be done. Yeah, I totally agree. The thing I'm interested in though as well is like, there's a lot of moving parts in um, in these sort of acquisitions for sure. And you mentioned, I think even more so like for Grubhub's B2B business side. So I think like if it's an acquisition of a B2C uh, delivery product, like I think the experience there is pretty much the same. It would just be like how they interact with the app and how they order food might have improved or got worse slightly. But 
on a B2B perspective, I think you have a whole lot of other accesses to consider. So uh, you have the relationship, like you say, with the account managers, you have the pricing structures might be different. You might have different features that go into it. So what does that process look like bringing in an external? Because I'm sure there must have been things you saw from these other companies that you acquired that might have been better than the processes you had over Grubhub or uh, in other ways, like you mentioned before, like things that you just wouldn't do in your business. So how did you go about prioritizing the changes that you were going to make for each one of these acquisitions, either to your own internal processes or to the customers at the end of the day, like them experiencing having a different experience? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of differences with respect to pricing, with restaurant availability, with, you know, particular features on the website or the app. I think the, in going through the experience, I think the thing that was most surprising to me on the B2B side was how different the um, account manager or the customer success manager's role was in what that experience was like for the customer. So for example, we we really it was across the spectrum on one side you know white glove high touch service where they were extremely involved even showing up to the office helping set up food um you know where they, they were going above and beyond um sort of adding that human layer to the technology component all the way to the other side where you know, they actually, there wasn't an assigned customer success manager or an account manager, like they could contact a support team, but really it was very, you know, technology uh, supported and, and focused. And so um, because of the massive sort of spectrum there on how involved the people were, which has a significant impact on what that customer is experiencing, that was one of the more challenging things to figure out and to coordinate. Um, and ultimately what we did um, was we actually did our best to maintain that element as consistent as possible throughout the change, even though it was a little bit different per company. But for every company, we were able to bring on those internal team members who knew what those processes were, who were used to delivering that type of service to the client. And then we went through a process after that to really figure out where are opportunities where we can create some standardization. Can we pull back a little bit more? Can we add some additional layers of service um, to people that didn't have it? Um, we actually also um, created a, sort of a concierge layer um, and were able to sort of monetize and charge for that, for that extra high touch. And so that was really fascinating. It's like when you get yeah. the people involved, like the experience can feel very, very different for that customer. And so that was, it was a fascinating thing that I wasn't necessarily anticipating before we got into the project. Yeah, I think that's incredible considering like they all had the same business and business model serving similar customers, yet from a people perspective, they had a totally different service and like the, the, the like the level of touch that the customer had with humans uh, varied quite drastically. Also interesting that you managed to as well like see a, an opportunity for add-ons there and uh, like find like a white glove service uh, out of it. So it uh, must have been a super, super interesting process. Like if you had to do it all over again today and say, okay, like this was going to be something you're going to get started with and you're going to help a company through this acquisition, like what would be the area that you would want to start with? Like, how would you like suggest to a company like now that's maybe going through this process of having acquired a company, getting them merged into their technology stack, into their people stack? Like, what would the process look like for you doing it today again? 
So it was really interesting, and especially because those five acquisitions happened over a pretty long period of time, that there's a really weird limbo period between when the acquisition happens and when the change happens. And it creates a lot of anxiety, for lack of a better word, where customers and even internal team members are, what's going to happen? And often when an acquisition happens, that stuff isn't figured out. And so I think one of the things that um, in hindsight, if I were to do this over again, I would have a pretty strong sort of internal communication plan and customer communication plan of what they should expect. Even if we're not really going to execute a change for a while, um, we didn't have a lot of answers and saying, I don't know, um, was unnerving to people. And so I think um, having a clearer path of what people could expect and communicating that effectively, both internally to the employees and externally to customers, I think is my biggest takeaway. So being a little bit more prepared up front. Yeah, I can definitely see that, especially as well, like from the internal people perspective, like it's always going to be unnerving. Like, uh, do you, is your job still going to be available? Like, are you going to be able to have a job six months or when this, when the transition happens? And and especially since like this was such a big component was the people component with these acquisitions and the service that they were providing as well. So uh, definitely makes a lot of sense as well, just being a little bit more preemptive from that side. Uh, nice. Uh, so one question I ask every guest that joins the show, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company and you arrive there and churn retention is not doing well. And the CEO comes to you and they ask you to try to turn things around, uh, but they want to see some results in three months. What would you want to be doing with your first 90 days at this company to try to turn things around for them? Ooh, that's a good question. Knowing that they want to see some results fairly quickly, I would approach this from two angles. One is what can I do in the short term to put out this fire? And then secondly, what can I start doing soon so that this problem doesn't continue to happen? And typically, with a customer base, depending upon the company and the product or service. But usually there are signals that can signal that a particular customer is at risk of churn. And so one of the first things that I would probably do is audit the existing customer base and try to identify who is in a good place, who who is probably churning tomorrow, and maybe it's too far gone, and then what's that group in the middle that's at risk? And I would deep dive into that particular cohort to really understand what contributed to that customer being at risk and would try to surface the top two or three trends or themes and develop initiatives that are designed to improve that. And additionally, would also run a playbook on uh, proactively addressing the risk at the account with the customer and seeing if there's an opportunity to turn things around. So I would deploy that approach uh, for the short term. The second is this exists because of probably larger fundamental problems in the business. And so I would, for more of the long-term solution, I would be working with um, the sales team, the marketing team, the leadership team to really unpack what is our ideal customer profile Are we really marketing and selling to to those customers? Are we bringing on bad customers? 
what does the sales process look like? Are we setting the right expectations? Are, are we selling to the right customers? What does that handoff look like? And then look at onboarding and, and see what can be done there. I often find that the root cause of churn is usually related to a poorly defined ICP, a bad sales process, or a poor onboarding process. Those are the big three. And so I can deploy some short-term tactics to stop the bleeding, but I would at the same time be tackling, you know, those root causes as well. Yep. Yep. Where, where it starts, where it all starts, who's the customer, making sure you have a good definition and understanding. And uh, I like as well, you mentioned of sales is really um, not selling the wrong things to your customers and then uh, letting them arrive and not receive the value that you promised. Interesting as well, like the thing you mentioned in the short term, though, as well, was like looking at signals for customers at risk. What would some of those signals typically be that you're looking for? Um, your main point of contact left the company or is no longer being responsive. If you're a software product, they're not using the tool. So whether that's not logging in or not taking actions that they used to take, any type of drop-off of usage in recent time periods, a significant spike or volume of support tickets that could mean that something's not working as it should. Those are some signals that I look at. Poor survey results, poor CSAT or NPS scores, if there's any survey methodology in place. Often also speaking with the customer success or account management team, they often have a qualitative pulse on which customers are not in a good place. So those are some of the consistent things that you can look at across organizations. Very nice. Quite a few, a good list there as well to think about and uh, evaluate in your own companies. Then last question I have for today, I see we're running up on time as well, is what's one thing that you know today about general retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? how important this is for the long-term health of the business. And I still think many companies do not give it the appropriate attention and investment like they do for sales and new customer acquisition. I believe that retaining your customers is like the number one thing you can do for the future success of your business. And I don't know if anyone would disagree with that, but they're like in theory, but a lot of actions that companies take is not consistent with that belief. And I think it took me a while to like really internalize that. And I find that when I go into a new organization that I have work to do to shift leadership's perspective to that frame of mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely one of the most powerful uh, levers you can pull for growth. Not the most, it is the most powerful lever when it comes to growth. Often, like we think short sighted when it comes to acquisition and just uh, bringing new people through the door and closing more deals. But if you're closing the right deals and you're bringing the right people, like for the long term health of the business and then the compounding impact on growth, uh, retention is always going to be the number one lever, I think. Cool. It's been a pleasure chatting today, Megan. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of or keep up to date with uh, the work that you're doing now? The only thing I would say on this particular topic with churn and retention is it's incredibly difficult to get retention and to mitigate churn. I think it's one of the most challenging things in any business. I don't think that there are any silver bullets either. So I think it's important for people to remember that and to just do the 
metrics correct in order to ensure that you're doing the right thing for your customer. Otherwise, I am on LinkedIn every day. I talk about customer success and sales and marketing and personal development and leadership. Anyone can find me on on LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. It's been fantastic having you today and wish you now best of luck going forward. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to be here. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.